I should like to call your attention this morning to the message that is to be found in that uh, 62nd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, which we read together at the beginning, with special emphasis perhaps upon verses 6 and 7. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest, till he establish, and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. If I had had any doubts before as to whether this particular message was really needed, they would certainly all have gone after listening to the way in which you've just been singing that hymn 505. Christian, seek not yet repose, cast thy dreams of ease away. Did you notice how we sang it? We dragged it mournfully. Cast thy dreams of ease away, thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Exactly. And that is why the church is as she is. That was a call to arms, to watchfulness, to vigilance, to gird ourselves with armor. It wasn't a lament. But thus I say, the church seems to have been overcome by such a spirit of lethargy and of defeatism. And thereby she gives the impression to those who are outside that she is filled with a sense of despair. We even drag a call to arms and are mournful as we remind ourselves of the armor in which we can place a final confidence and trust. Well, now then, we need very badly what Isaiah has to tell us in the 62nd chapter of his great prophecy. Here, you see, is a man again facing the condition of the church. He was writing, he was given a foreview, he therefore prophesies the coming of the Chaldean army and enemy against Jerusalem. And he can see that they're going to conquer the Israelite army, that they're going to capture the city, destroy it, raise its great buildings to the ground, and carry the people away captive into Babylon. But he was not only given to see that, he was given to see the restoration coming. And thus his prophecy is divided largely between these two things. And here we find him looking at the situation when it was at its worst and in the light of the gracious promises of God, showing how he reacted to such a situation and what he called upon the people to do. Now there can be no doubt at all, as has been the traditional interpretation in the church throughout the centuries, the primary reference of this chapter is to that, the captivity in Babylon and the return of the remnant to Jerusalem. But it doesn't stop at that. Here undoubtedly also is a foreview of a great ingathering which is going to take place amongst the Jews. There is no question but that that is here also. And still there is something else here. And that is a picture of the Christian church. 
You will know that our Lord himself quoted several times from this particular section of Isaiah's prophecy, showing quite clearly, therefore, that it does refer to the church and to gospel times. You remember how in that first address of his in the synagogue at Nazareth, he quoted from the 61st chapter. All this is a part of the same picture. And so, it has been customary in the church throughout the running centuries for God's people to see in such a statement as this a call to the church in a time of declension, in a time when she is beset round and about by enemies and problems and when, in a large measure, she has suffered defeat at the hands of her foes. So that we can take this picture this morning and therefore apply it to ourselves and see how we should react to our present position. Now I'm calling attention to this in a particular manner because it's a very practical chapter. And it reminds us, therefore, that in our consideration of the need of revival, we are not to be content with a mere theoretical examination of the position. Indeed, that can be quite fatal. The whole object of the theoretical consideration is to lead to action. It's to lead to something in practice. The prophets, as they delineate the condition of Israel, never merely stop at that. They do that in order to rouse the people, to bestir themselves, and to do something to meet this tragic situation in which they found themselves. And here, as we shall see, the whole emphasis is upon the response, the action, the determination to do something. And as I'm saying, there is really no purpose in looking at the present situation, in considering the great movements of the Spirit in the past, unless it leads to a determination on our part to act and to do something in the light of the position in which we find ourselves. Well, very well, all I have to do this morning is just to pick out for you the things which are stated here so clearly. Indeed, there is no difficulty about this. I simply have to take the statements of Isaiah as he made them and to hold them before you as simply as I can. What do we find here? Well, here's the first thing. The prophet's concern. The prophet uh, is deeply moved. Listen to him. He starts off, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Zion. Jerusalem. These were not mere names, you see, to the prophet. They were names which meant so much to him which conveyed so much to him and which, of which he was so proud. What is Zion? Well, Zion, he knows, is the city of God. Not merely the city of David, but the city of God. Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? Well, she is the city of the great king. Now, the prophet is concerned because he knows the real meaning of Zion and of Jerusalem. Then it was not just an ordinary city to him, just a city among cities. No, no, the city of God. God had made this place and established it for himself. 
and had given this people, his own people, this great privilege of living in such a city, Jerusalem and Zion. And therefore realizing as he did the greatness and the glory of this city of God, the prophet is grieved, deeply concerned and moved as he sees her present condition. Now, there is the starting point. For Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake. He starts with that and we must start with that. Because the first thing that is necessary for us is a concern about the state of the church. You read these prophets and you'll find they don't spend their time in being concerned about the state of the other nations and those who are outside. No, no. What, what the burden of these men is the state and the condition of the church. That's the thing they keep on writing about. That the church of the living God, that Zion should be reduced to this. They think of her former glory. They think of all her associations. And now they see her in this condition. And that is the thing, I say, that moves them and grips them. And is their chiefest concern. And therefore the question that comes to us is whether we can say that we know something about the, the same concern. What is the thing that is our burden? To what extent can we say that the condition of the church is on our hearts and minds, is deeply concerning us? Do we realize what the church is? Do we remember that she is the city of God? Do we remember that she is his new creation by water and the word? City of God. That's what the church is. This is Zion. This is God's dwelling place. God has made her for himself. He's brought her into being even at the cost of the blood and the death of his own son. And the question is, are we concerned about the state of the church? Now surely we must needs admit, many of us, that we are so preoccupied with ourselves and our own personal problems and difficulties and all that we talk so much about that we never stop for a moment to look at the church objectively and see her and begin to mourn because of her condition. Now, as you read these prophets and as you read the Psalms, you will find that that is the thing that is always uppermost in the minds of these men. These men had such a conception of the nation to which they belonged as the people of God and all God's purposes that were in her and involved in her well-being, that seeing her as she was, they couldn't think of anything else in a sense. And uh, it is, I say, the thing that is uh, grieving at the present time that this aspect of the matter seems to be almost entirely absent. And men and women can't see any need to be concerned. Well, if you're not concerned, my friend, there's only one explanation. It is because you haven't the right conception of the church of God. It is because we don't see her as the prophet saw the nation and Zion and Jerusalem. 
If only, I say, we had a true conception of the Christian church. If we only really saw her as she is in the New Testament. If we had but some dim and vague notion of what she was in the early years, and indeed in the early centuries, if we but really understood what she is like in every period of revival and of reawakening, I say we would be heartbroken at the present condition. We would be grieved and filled with a sense of sorrow. We are always troubled when we see something which once was great and famous going down or ceasing to be. The decline and fall of an empire is a sad spectacle. It's a sad thing to see a great business going down. It's sad to see a, a great man, a great professional man losing his grip. It's sad to see a man who's great at sport suddenly because of age beginning to fail. Something that always fills us with a sense of sorrow and of sadness. Well, multiply all that by infinity. And then try to conceive of the church of God as she is in the mind of God and as she was formed and founded and contrast that with what she is today. Oh, says this man, for Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not hold my peace, I will take no rest. This is to him tragic. Well, very well, there's his starting point. And I say that this is so because he sees her as she was at that present time. These are his terms. She is forsaken. She is desolate. He says that in verse 4. When the Reformation comes, he says, Thou shalt be no more termed forsaken, but now she is forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but it is now desolate. God seemed to have left her. The people had been carried away. And the site presented by Zion and by Jerusalem was that of desolation. Not only that, in verse 8, he gives us another picture. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. But at the moment, that is what was happening. Their corn was being given as meat for the enemies. And the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. There she was, forsaken, desolate. Their people working, but yes, their, the results of their work was taken. The corn was taken. The wine was taken. The enemy... the their conquerors were eating the corn and they were drinking their wine. And all their activity and effort and labor finally, as it were, came to nothing. That was his picture of the church in his own day and generation. And as he looks at it and as he contrasts it with what she was and was meant to be, I say he's burdened, he's concerned, his heart is almost broken. Christian people, are you really satisfied with the state of the Christian church today? Do we ever stop to think about it? It's my lot to travel a little round this country. And what even I see is bad, but I'm always told that if I could enter some of these places of worship on an ordinary Sunday, I would scarcely believe what I could see. I could name you towns and villages in this land which were once filled with a praying and praising and glorying people. 
Names which stand out in the annals of Christianity in this country. Filled with a sense of the glory of God. But today they're desolate, they're deserted, they're forsaken. Now the whole call of the prophet is that we must face these things and we must begin to realize them. We mustn't be misled by the reports which we read in the religious press, which would give the impression that everything's going remarkably well and that there's no need to trouble. We've got to think of the Christian church as she is to be found in the towns and villages and hamlets and country districts of this land. And the vast majority of people outside the church, only 10% claiming any allegiance at all, and only half those visiting a place of worship with any regularity. That is the position. The church has become a remnant, weak and small. And those who are still faithful for various reasons are discouraged, they're dispirited. And the others look upon them almost with pity because they're still holding on to something that is so obviously outmoded and exploded. Now there, my friends, is the thing, is the position that confronts us. And the question I'm asking is to what extent are we conscious of the feelings that animated the prophet? It is our business as members of the Christian church, every one of us to be concerned about these things. We must not be concerned only about our personal problems. We've got them, I know, but we must deal with them and go beyond them. We must become intercessors, as the prophet was calling upon his fellow countrymen to become intercessors. Now then, there it is. He's got this concern because he sees Zion as she is, and then because of what he desires her to be. And this is how he puts it. He says he is not going to keep silent, nor give himself any rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. That's his vision for Jerusalem. Here she is, down and out, as it were. But no, he says, I'm not taking this. I'm not going to hold my peace. I will take no rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. That's his vision for the church. That is what he wants her to be like. That's, he can see her in faith with his prophetic vision. He can see her becoming that again. Now this is a tremendous statement. You know, this is the thing that has happened to every man whom God has ever used to stir the church and to lead in the matter of revival. It was a thing like this in the heart of Martin Luther that suddenly set him aflame. He saw the church in which he'd been brought up and to which he'd belonged. He saw what a travesty she'd become. He says, this is desolation. This is tragedy. Then he saw in the New Testament the church of God as she is meant to be, a lamp of burnished gold holding the light before the nations. And he began to stir and to be moved. That's how it happened. And you and I must catch this vision of what the church can be. Well, there's no excuse for us, my dear friends. You see it in the, in the Bible itself. You see that handful of people in the book of the Acts of the Apostles burning with power like a lamp that burneth 
The righteousness thereof going forth as brightness. Can't you see the flame and the power? Read the accounts, I say again, of all the great revivals in the history of the church. Go back to the glorious period of the Reformation. Go back to 200 years ago. Acquaint yourselves with the days when Whitfield and the Wesleys and others were preaching here in London with the unction of the Holy Ghost upon them and mighty things happening under his all-powerful influence. You know the trouble is we have no conception of the church. We've never seen her like that, have we? No, no. We've seen a kind of outward prosperity, but that isn't the prosperity of the church. We haven't seen, we know nothing about the church going forth with brightness and as a lamp that is burning. But she's meant to be like that. She can be like that. Very well, we must realize that. That's the way in which the prophet speaks concerning himself. And then he adds another description. He says, Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. What tremendous faith this is. He was looking at a church desolate and forsaken. It's all right, he says. I can see you as you're going to be, as you're meant to be, as a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. And then you remember these other terms which he uses. You are no longer going to be forsaken, he says. I can see a day coming, says the prophet, when the church shall no more be desolate. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which means... His delight is in her. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thy land shall be called Beulah, which means married. Now, we must be clear about these terms. What the prophet, you see, is saying is this. God's delight does not seem to be in his people. God is like a husband who's gone away from home and who seems to have forgotten his wife. That's what he's saying. And that was certainly true of the condition of Israel at that time. There she was, at the mercy of her enemies. She who'd conquered everybody. She who'd been so great under King David and under King Solomon after him. Here she is, a remnant weak and small. The majority carried away to Babylon, working as slaves under the hand of that cruel Chaldean power. And he looks at all this and he says, what is it? Well, God has forsaken us. God has turned away from us. But he's not going to give himself rest nor peace until God looks back and comes back and says, my delight is in thee. I am thy husband, I'm coming back. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah, my delight is in thee, and thy land Beulah, married, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And then in addition to that, you see, he makes this statement, give him no rest till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. But everybody looks on and praises her. And indeed he adds, in those verses 8 and 9, that she's going to be prosperous again. They that have gathered the corn shall eat it and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Now this, you see, is the thinking that leads 
to what follows. He sees the church as she is. He says, God seems to have left us. God has forsaken us. Is that true of us today? Well, I don't hesitate to say that it is, my friends. These terms, of course, are relative. We mustn't despise the day of small things. But believe me, we are living in the day of very, very small things. When you contrast the condition of the church today with what she has been, you cannot but come to the conclusion that for various reasons, God is not looking upon us and smiling upon us. There is a sense in which we are forsaken. There is a sense in which we are desolate. The church today, speaking generally throughout the whole world, is an abandoned church. She's in a desolate condition. Now then, I say, that is the thing that we've got to realize. And then we must see the possibility. She was not meant for this. She was meant for that. And then he's got one other thing which animates him and which moves him, you notice. He is anxious that the Gentiles shall rarely see her as she is. That's the second verse. Let me read the first two verses again. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth, and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. This was a constant motive. Nothing worried these men of God more than that the heathen, the Gentiles, should be scoffing. They knew that they were scoffing. Israel had made a great claim for herself. She had said, we are the people of God. Zion is the city of the living God. Look at the temple, they said. God dwells in that temple. They say, you Gentiles, you're in the outer court. You've never been into the holiest place of all. You've never seen the Shekinah glory. But God is there between the cherubims. That's what they had claimed. God's own people. And here they are defeated and desolate. And they knew the enemy was laughing and scoffing and full of derision and of sarcasm. And the kings, the great potentates who defied God and his armies and his people. Oh, said this man, I'm not going to be quiet until the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. And all kings thy glory. Are you moved by such thoughts, my friends? Does it grieve you and trouble you as you hear the jokes and the laughter about the Christian church? Are you not moved as you hear these modern kings, I mean now people like philosophers and scientists and others, dismissing and deriding not us, but God and the city of God, the Christian church, the church which Christ purchased with his blood? They're laughing at her, they're spitting upon her, and are you and I unmoved? Isn't there a deep and a burning desire within us that these Gentiles, these kings, shall see the church in her glory, in her brightness, with the light of heaven upon her face, and the power and the flame of the Holy Spirit within her? That's the thing that was animating the mind and the heart and the spirit of this prophet Isaiah. 
He looks forward to a day when these Gentiles and kings shall call them, God's people, thy holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out a city not forsaken. He says, I'm not going to keep quiet until Zion shall be again a city which men shall seek. They'll come from the ends of the earth to seek Zion, the city of God, exalted above all the nations and all the cities of the world. Sought out a city not forsaken. Well, now then, there is the thought, you see, that provides the background to what the prophet proceeds to exhort. Which brings me to my second matter. What was it the prophet decided to do in the light of all this, and what did he exhort all others to do? Well, here it is in verses 6 and 7. Indeed, he starts off even at the very beginning by saying, I will not hold my peace. I will not rest. There it is. He says, I'm going to speak. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to preach to people. I'm going to be talking about this always, non-stop. I will not hold my peace. I will not rest while things are as they are and until they become what I see they can be and are going to be. In other words, he is a man who is consumed by this one idea. This thing has gripped him, it's moved him, he's wholehearted, his whole being is involved. It isn't merely parts of him, it's the whole of him. He doesn't merely do it now and again. Sometimes when he sees something particularly bad, he begins to think and then forgets all about it, goes back to the dull routine, uh, prays for, for a while, then forgets and goes back, and then comes back. There's nothing, to be, there's nothing spasmodic about this, there's nothing fitful, fitful about it. It has become his one concern, the passion of his life, the one thing about which he always speaks. It's become a burden upon his spirit. Now, the point I'm trying to establish is this. If you again go back and read as I exalt you and beseech you to do the history of any revival that you can find an account of anywhere, you will find that that is how revivals have always begun. God has thus put this burden upon somebody. One man, a number of men, it doesn't matter what the number is. That's how it always begins. If you like, a man becomes a sort of monomaniac about this. Always talking about it. I will take no rest. I will not hold my peace. Speaking about it. Telling people about it. Exhorting people to consider it. Thus I say, God begins to move. That was the truth about the prophet Isaiah. Of course, there were many people who thought he'd gone mad. They thought the same about Jeremiah. They said, what is the matter with these men who seem to be hoping on the same point always? Why can't they go back and let's go on with a happy routine of church life? Why always this one thing? Isn't this beating a dead horse? That's how they speak, you know. There has never been a man yet who has had a true vision of what the church of God should be and can be and who's contrasted that with our present position but that he has begun to speak about it and has become obsessed by it and people have thought he's mad and they've criticized him. Why all this bother, they say, Auntie, isn't everything all right? That's what the false prophets were saying in Israel and they're saying it today. 
There are people who are actually opposed to the whole notion of revival. You can read their books in the Holy Spirit, you can read their articles in the periodicals in the Holy Spirit, and you'll find they don't mention revival at all. They don't believe in an outpouring of the Spirit of God, in spite of the history of the church. They don't seem to want it. God have mercy upon them. At ease in Zion, with Zion as she is, and the world as it is. Very well then, that's the first thing he tells us, but then he goes on to a practical measure. I have set watchmen, he says, upon thy walls. Here is a practical step. Which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. What is the purpose of these watchmen? Well, they are to guard, of course. That was the custom with an ancient city. There was a city wall, and they set watchmen to keep a lookout, day and night, always watching. What for? Well, they were guarding the city. They were keeping their eye on the coming of a possible enemy. If they saw a sudden movement, suddenly in the trees, or in some distant field, they saw, they reported, the watchmen. These were the men who were guarding the life and the safety of the city. I don't stay to elaborate these points this morning. But the watchmen are as necessary as they've ever been. There are certain enemies always waiting to attack, always mustering their forces, gathering them, unseen as our hymn put it. What are they? Well, the enemies that would attack the truth, the doctrine... And not only the doctrine, but the life of the church, her holiness, her department, her behavior. I have set watchmen, says the prophet. These men must keep their eyes open, and they're going to, day and night. They'll never hold their peace. They'll always be on the lookout. And if ever this were necessary, it is today. There are ideas coming in increasingly, even into evangelical circles, that what you believe finally doesn't matter very much, that if a man's a good man, if he calls himself a Christian, you can cooperate with him. You get men coming together and speaking in the same meeting who diametrically are opposed to one another in their ultimate doctrine, but they say it doesn't matter. There is terrible confusion. There is a slipping and a sliding in terms of expediency and unity and things like that. But it's no good, my dear friends. Zion is the city of God. She's a holy people. She's a holy place. It is where God dwells. And you cannot afford to play fast and loose with doctrine. And likewise, I say with the life. But the business of the watchmen is not merely to look for enemies. They had another function. When a city was hard-pressed and besieged, the watchmen had a further function, it was this, to keep their eyes upon the horizon, to see if perchance some relieving force were on the way, to see if some friend were gathering his forces and coming to attack the enemy in their rear, keeping a lookout. Is there a hope of deliverance? Is there someone coming with relief? Watchmen upon the wall. Waiting for the good news. Waiting to see the messengers of peace, as Isaiah has already put it in chapter 40, coming across the tops of the mountains, proclaiming the day of salvation. The watchman, like Habakkuk having prayed, going into his watchtower, waiting for God's answer. 
This is a very essential part of this procedure. You and I should be waiting and looking and watching. And if we hear of any stirring of the Spirit of God, we should with eagerness pray that it may continue, that it may increase, that it may go on. If you hear of just some smoldering flax, pray that it may burst forth into a flame. Well, there he is. He set his watchmen upon the walls. But then, the last thing I must just mention is this. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This is a wonderful statement, this. Ye that make mention of the Lord, yes, but in the margin you will find an alternative translation, which is undoubtedly the right one. Ye that are the Lord's remembrances. That's how the revised version which you have in the pews puts it. You that are the Lord's remembrances, or the revised standard puts it, you who put the Lord in remembrance. You who are the Lord's remembrances, keep not silence, and give him no rest until he's done this. Now then, here is the call to prayer, the call to intercession. And what does it mean? Well, I think we can interpret it like this according to the translations. He is addressing people who still remember the Lord. He is addressing people who don't look to men so much as to God. You who remember the Lord, he says. I'm addressing you and I'm telling you, keep no peace, keep on. Don't keep silent, take no rest. But it has another meaning also. These are not only people who remember the Lord themselves, they remind others of the Lord. And they exhort others also to pray to him. And this is where I would appeal to every one of you. If you, my friend, have begun to see something of the burden of the age in which we live and you are yourself praying to God to visit us and to revive his work, stir up others also. Remind them also. Say to them, look here, God is still there. Why don't you pray to him? Why don't you turn to him? Stir them up, you remembrances of the Lord. You who remember him, remind others of him. But it has a still higher and more wonderful and indeed a very daring meaning, which is this. You that are the Lord's remembrances. In other words, you. Who are to remind God himself of his own promises. It has that meaning in it. It's a daring meaning, but it's here. And everybody's agreed about this. We are to remind God of his own promises. When we pray, we are to go to God with words. And we are to remind him of what he said about Zion, about Jerusalem. What he has said about the church. And we are to remind him that he never changes his word. He never breaks a promise. That he can't change himself. We are to go with him. We are to go to him with the promises, his own promises, and say, Lord, this is what thou hast said. Look upon us. You are the Lord's remembrances. Keep not silence. 
Remind him. Speak to him. Tell him about these things. Now you'll find the psalmists were always doing that. That's what their prayers are. Read them. You'll find the New Testament men did exactly the same thing. They quote the Psalms. They remind God. And then they bring their petitions. You and I are to become the Lord's remembrances. And lastly, we are to go on doing this. Did you notice this element of importunity? For Zion's sake, says this man, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until he's going on with it. Until. He says about these watchmen that he has set them upon the wall and that they shall never hold their peace day nor night. He's got to go on doing it and they're to go on doing it. Now notice this other wonderful phrase here. Ye that are the Lord's remembrances, heap not silence, says this authorized version. But the revised version and others are better here. They translate it, take no rest. It comes to the same thing. If you're not keeping silence, you can't be taking rest. If you're taking rest, you are silent. They mean the same thing ultimately. But notice this. You that are the Lord's remembrances, take no rest. The times are desperate. They're urgent. When we're in the midst of a great war, trade union rules and regulations are relaxed. Every kind of regulation is relaxed. People say we can't afford to live leisurely as if we were in a state of peace. We're fighting for our lives. Weren't we told that a few years ago in the Second World War? They said, look here, give in, give up everything. What's the point of having all these things if you lose your life, if you lose your country? Relax your rules. Take no rest. Let us be all out the whole time. That was the appeal. Here's the same appeal in Isaiah. Take no rest. Be not silent. And then... This daring statement. And give him no rest. Give God no rest. Till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What a bold statement. And yet, of course, Isaiah was perfectly right. We are to take no rest ourselves. We are to give God no rest. Until he's heard us. Until he's answered us. Until Jerusalem is clothed in her beautiful robes again. And is like a burning, shining light. Give him no rest. Give yourself no rest. Keep on. Bombard God. Bombard him. Until the answers come. Well, you see, we have the authority of our Lord for this, haven't we? Jacob did something like that, didn't he, in the Old Testament? I will not let thee go, he said. The man wrestled with him and he said, it's the dawn, it's the break of day, let me go. I will not let thee go, said Jacob. I'm not letting go until you've given me my request. I will not let thee go, wrestling Jacob. That's it. I've reminded you how Moses did exactly the same thing. We've been considering it in Exodus 33. Moses made a request. God said, yes, more, said Moses. Right, said God. More, said Moses. Up and up he goes. Here is Isaiah doing the same thing. And our Lord has taught us to pray like this. It's one of the most glorious and wonderful statements even he ever made about God and God's relationship to us. He said, you know, you mustn't just pray fitfully, you must become importunate. 
You must be like that man who suddenly is visited by a friend at night and he's got no food to give him. So he says, oh, my friend up the street, he's got some loaves. And he goes and hammers at the door. But the friend shouts and says, I can't come down. I'm in bed and my children are with me. No, no, says the man, you must give me something. I know you've got bread and I've got a stranger here. I can't let him go without a meal. He goes on hammering. I can't, says the man, I'm in bed. But he goes on and on and at last the man gets up and gives him the bread. The man in the bed, in our Lord's illustration, is none other than God himself. Because of his importunity, he arose and gave him the bread. And if we, your earthly, sinful, evil fathers, know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more shall our Father which is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He won't mock us. But you see, like a father, he seems to keep us waiting. He seems to say no at first, that we may go on asking, and we must become importunate. And again in Luke 18, you've got the same thing. Our Lord there teaches about the unjust judge. It's called the parable of the unjust judge. I think it should be called the parable of the importunate widow. She went before the judge and he seemed to be dismissing the case. Back she came. And he dismissed it again. Back she came again. And at last the judge said, this woman, she's worrying us. She's hitting us black and blue as it were. She's going on. She's importunate. And at last he said, very well, then let's consider her case. And he granted her request. Our Lord spoke that parable under this heading, that men should always pray and not faint. Take no rest, says Isaiah. Give him no rest. My dear friends, have we got a vision of what the church is meant to be? Do we see the contrast between our present state and what she can be and will be? Well, if we have, I say, let us set watchmen on the wall. Let us become the Lord's remembrances in every sense of the term. And let us take no rest. And let us give him no rest. Till Jerusalem shall again have become a praise and a glory. And her brightness and her righteousness shall shine. And the Gentiles and the kings shall all see her and shall come seeking her that they through her may seek her Lord and the salvation which he alone can give. May God open our eyes to the urgency of the times and to God's own way of dealing with it. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.